Hello, it's Thursday, February the 17th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're talking to the fitness chef, debunking some of those diet myths. You will be surprised at some of them. Why working from home, contrary to a lot of expectations, can actually lead to higher productivity. Men, have you been checked for prostate cancer? 14,000 haven't, and it can, of course, be a fatal disease, but it's easily treatable if it's caught in its early stages. But first, first it was Prince Andrew, now it's Prince Charles, who's in the thick of controversy with his charity being investigated over alleged cash in return for honours. So another crisis for the monarchy as the police launch an investigation into the Prince of Wales charity just one day after his brother settled a sexual assault case involving up to £12 million. Prince Charles's office says he's willing to assist Scotland Yard, which is investigating allegations of a cash for honours scandal at the Prince's Foundation. Uh, to discuss this is Robert Jobson, best-selling author and royal editor of the Evening Standard newspaper. Robert, um, we know the Prime Minister is about to be interviewed at any some point, we think, over whether he did or didn't attend parties in breach of lockdown rules. I never thought around the same time we could be hearing the future King could be interviewed by the police. Yeah, I mean, I think he has to be interviewed, probably, uh, when it comes to this case. I mean, I think there's a lot of politics involved here. Of course, the Republic group and the people involved in the anti-monarchy group involved in trying to get this file. But the, the, the reality is, all I would say, not in defence of the Prince of Wales, is that you know he's a man that gets something in the region of 25 million every year from the Duchy of Cornwall, which is not taxpayers' money, but he gets that. Yeah. He's probably raised over 500 million pounds for charity. And he has a lot of people, and another thing is a lot of pies, a lot of people looking after his affairs. Now, in this instance, it seems that he's been let down. We don't know that yet. We'll have to wait and see. But the resignation of Michael Fawcett, his, many years ago, his valet, who he may be overpromoted, but uh, who was the chief executive of this foundation, um, it seems to be uh, acting alone and has, has written to this, this um, Saudi uh, guy, Dr. Mafus. Now, I, see, I just can't imagine the principal well being interested in getting a few dollars more, a few pounds more for his foundation, knowing that you know, that would be completely wrong in the way it would be going about, uh, about it. So I, I'm surprised by this, but I'm not surpri- I'm, it must be disappointing for him as well because he, can't, you know, he has to you know, ultimately take responsibility. And of course, this is all coming um, in a year that's supposed to be so significant and so special for the Queen. Uh, She passed a historic milestone of 70 years on the throne on February the 6th, a packed schedule of celebrations in June. So first of all, the Prince Andrew uh, court case is cleared out of the way, although questions will continue and that controversy won't go away either. And now the Prince of Wales may be questioned by the police and who knows about the timing. Uh, None of this will be welcome by Her Majesty, aged 95. Well, none of it will be welcome, but she's a pretty stoic character, even at 95, and I think when she admitted, you know, I can't move, <laughs> we all felt for her. The reality is it's been a pretty difficult time ever since her wise councillor, the Duke of Edinburgh, who, you know, used to, in a way, sort of, was a iron 
I and Rob, but everyone seemed to be in line at the time. But now, yeah. since he's passed, it seems to the, the, it all seems to be unraveling somewhat. Um, the most important thing for the Queen is she's told all the facts dead straight. She doesn't want to be. A, she doesn't like being, you know, people to hide things from her. She wants to know exactly what the issues were. I remember speaking to a former aide at the time of in the nineties. He said that that's all she asked for. And, but I'm sure in this instance, you know, with Prince of Wales, it, would have been, it could have been better timing for her, to say the least. Yeah, and of course, you and I, Robert, have written about um, uh, Michael Fawcett over many years. I can remember you would have probably written a story around the same time when I was on The Times. We wrote that he was being booted out of the palace after his role in the sale of royal gifts that had been given to Prince Charles. He was involved in them being sold on. And then we discovered, we were told on the one hand, he was leaving the, the employment of the Prince of Wales. And then we discovered, I don't know if it was days later or weeks later, he was carrying on as a consultant on a very large sum of money. Prince Charles simply has found this man too indispensable to let go of. Finally, he went last year. Yeah, I think it's, it, I, I, it's a clear lack of judgment when it comes to Michael Fawcett and, and allowing him to be clearly over-promoted in this instance. Um, you know, he's a guy that he's obviously very capable over many years of dealing with big issues, promoted from, you know, as you say, a, a valet through, through mm. the ranks. But maybe in this instance, the Prince of Wales lacked judgment in over-promoting him to be head of a foundation in this way. Um, he clearly was a very good fixer in his time, but um, and he seemed to be the, almost Teflon, didn't he, Andrew? That was the reality. He did. Every time he that was. He, was, he was found out, he, he seemed to come back in a bigger role with more money. But in this instance, I think it's um, um, Prince Charles has put his trust in this guy, and it does appear the fact that you know it hasn't been ruled yet, but uh, he has resigned over the matter um, that he's uh, let him down. And just finally, Robert, Prince Andrew, of course, we know um, that he's settled that case. He's accepted no responsibility. Uh, uh, he's made a statement um, apologising to Virginia Dufresne. Um, she, the, 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 part, the weird part of the statement I found was that she cannot speak about anything to do with him until after the Queen's Jubilee celebrations are out the way. Do we think then that she that, that she will be um, kissing and telling or, or doing a big TV programme? And what does she wait, a week after the Jubilee celebrations are done and dusted? It seems a strange state of affairs. It's just being held in abeyance almost. Well, to, to be honest, Andrew, I think we've probably read as much of the lurid, yeah. rubby details as we probably want to. I mean, you know... I think that I must be honest. I think if he if he'd been able to, I, I think he would have fought on. Um, but the, the pressure was such from the Prince of Wales and other members of the family that I think um, he had to, you know, he had to settle in this way. Look, I, I think we her her evidence was pretty much was flawed, and so was you know his inconsistencies. So I, don't, I think the whole thing was it would be better if he didn't have to read any more of the grubby details because all of it seems to me that she's not completely, uh, you know, holy the now and the whole thing either. So I think if she is going to write a book, well, I mean, she's already written pages and pages and pages about yes. three encounters that happened quite a long time ago, if they ever happened at all. Indeed. That's Robert Jobson, best-selling author, and he's also the royal editor, of course, of The Evening Standard. Thanks for joining us. 
Now visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, and our podcasts and video series are there too. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So thousands of men are being urged to check their risk of prostate cancer amid warnings that more than 14,000 may have missed a diagnosis during the pandemic, which could mean their lives could be cut short. New figures show that the disease accounts for a third of those estimated to have missed cancer treatment. And of course, it was all during the pandemic, making the cancer most likely to go undiagnosed. Of course, many of the men held off visiting their GP because they didn't want to bother them during the pandemic. Let's talk to Nicola Tallett, who's acting chief executive at Prostate Cancer UK. Nicola, I wonder, as a man of a certain generation, I get I check I get myself checked every year if some men would have used the pandemic as an excuse not to be checked because they find the whole thing so embarrassing. Um, that's a really good question. And, and the, the men that we've spoken to have been telling us that they didn't want to bother their GP, um, but we can't tell what was going on in their minds. What we do know is that um, 58,000 men actually began their treatment for prostate cancer since April 2020. So some men have obviously been coming forward, but we're worried about those 14,000 that uh, we would have expected to start treatment that just didn't. And and pre-pandemic, men would often have a sort of incidental conversation with their GP about prostate cancer when they went with something else. And obviously during the pandemic, fewer of us went to the GPs for other aches and and pains and therefore uh, weren't having those incidental conversations with their GPs. So we really want men to, to think about the risk, not to be embarrassed, Um, But to go and uh, do the Prostate Cancer UK website, we have a risk checker that will give you lots of information. And at the end of it, you can print out um, what what you've uh, learnt through the risk checker and take that to the GP to start the conversation. Because often it's starting that's the difficult part of it, isn't it? It is. And of course, it's so important because I'm looking at the figures here. You'll know these better than anyone. One in eight men are likely to suffer prostate cancer during their lives. Uh, There'll be 50,000 diagnoses a year. That's if there hadn't been a pandemic and up to 12,000 deaths. They are huge numbers. And and that's why it's so important for men to recognise that risk. Um, and, and the one in eight men, obviously there are some who have higher risk than others. So I'll just, I'll just share that with you. So men who are over the age of 50, as you say, men of a, of a certain age, but also the risk increases with age. So 50 start thinking about it and risk will increase after that. Additionally, those whose father or brother had the disease or have the disease, and that will put them at greater risk as well. And for black men, the risk actually increases to one in four. And so it's really important that people in these higher risks um, come forward and speak to their GP urgently. And of course, we know that in the early stages of prostate cancer, um, often there are no symptoms. So there could be many of us who got it, but don't realise it, which is all the more reason we should go to the doctor to be checked. That's right. So prostate prostate cancer is very treatable if caught early. But as you say, if there are no symptoms um, in those early stages, there's nothing to talk about with your GP other than this risk. And that's why Prostate Cancer UK um, is promoting the risk checker in association with NHS England, because together we want to find those 14,000 men. 
Yeah, and um, on that, just remind people, Nicola, um, if they, if people, people listening are thinking maybe it's a wife or a a, a, a girlfriend or a, a partner thinking about the, the bloke. Hmm. he keeps getting up and going to the loo in the middle of the night that can be a sign equally people having difficulty going to the loo can be a sign that's right there are there are symptoms um for, for prostate cancer and um and that's one of them but just because you're doing that it, it doesn't automatically mean it's prostate cancer so I, I don't want to scare everybody no but, but it is important that if you notice something in your partner or loved one, in a, in a parent or grandparent, um, that you do uh, ask them, have the conversation. It is nothing to be embarrassed about. You know, we want to make sure that all the men we love are fit and healthy and pointing out that something has changed, maybe in, the, in, in as you say, the, the number of times they're going to the toilet in, in the day or the night, then that's something that they can then use as a, as a reason to have that conversation with their GP. And just finally, can you remind us, Nicola, um, what, it, how do they go on with your, with your uh, guide on your website? How do we find it? Yes, that's good. Um, so if you can go to the Prostate Cancer UK website, um, if you want to put it into your um, search engine, it's prostatecanceruk.org forward slash risk checker. And that will help you. Uh, it's a very interactive guide. And as I say, at the end of it, you can print out um, the, the information to be able to have that conversation with your GP without any embarrassment at all. So um, please do go to the Prostate Cancer UK's website. Well, certain good advice and something we should all do. Guys, if you're listening, do it. No time like the present. That's Nicola Tallett, Acting Chief Executive at Prostate Cancer UK. Experts say working from home doesn't seem to impact productivity. In fact, it could even be beneficial. According to the Office for National Statistics, output per hour overtook that of pre-pandemic levels for the first time during the last few months of 2021 and in fact revealed output was 2.3% higher than the 2019 average. Uh, Bart Van Ark is, is a professor of productivity studies and managing director of Manchester University's Productivity Institute. So, Professor, um, I assumed because we're working from home, we'd be sloping off to the fridge, sloping off to make more cups of tea, maybe going for a walk with the dog, going in the garden. I just thought there'd be so many distractions from actually working flat out. Well, it has really been one of the most interesting uh, word experiments in our lifetimes, if not in, in, in all history, uh, to suddenly experience during the pandemic that lots of people had to go and work from home. And it was really interesting to see how people adjusted to that. In first instance, it was actually a, a big surprise to everyone that people could actually quickly adjust to working from home. You know, most people had access to some, uh, you know, computers and digital technologies and things like that. So. You know, we kept things going, but then during the pandemic, you know, people gradually began to adjust their working patterns and things like that. And then organizations really had to begin to think about, okay, how, how is this going to be in the longer term? And then also what I figured out is that, you know, people wanted to, some people had a real preference to continue to do this even after the pandemic. So now organizations have to think about, okay, if we're going to continue with this for multiple years, what is the productivity effect of that going to be? And I think it's still a bit too early uh, to call victory on this. I think we still have to sort out a lot of what the productivity effects of that will be. Do you think working from home could, Professor, become the new normal for, for far more people than before? Well, it's very interesting when you look at the data. So, of course, there is about one third of the working workforce that cannot work from home because they work in shops or in other places where they have to be you know, at, at the workplace. 
for the other two-thirds of the working population, there is a, there is a, a large di diversity in people's preferences. Uh, there are people who actually couldn't wait to go back to the office full-time. There are people who are very happy to work from home permanently. But frankly, the majority of employees would actually be very happy if their uh, employer could continue with some kind of hybrid uh, way of working, which means about two or three days working from home and two or, days, uh, two or three days uh, working in the office. And that's what a lot of uh, organizations have now begun to adjust to to make that work. And it could revolutionize some working practice. If you think um, the city of London in particular was virtually deserted during the lockdowns, Whitehall, the great civil service buildings, pretty empty too. And when I was walking mm. past the home office only yesterday, Professor, you could sense it was almost deserted because the civil servants are working from home. Yeah, I think we're still in the adjustment process. And again, that's why I think it's a little bit too early to look at these productivity numbers that you were quoting to say, oh, this is the effect on work from home. I think there are other things going on that have been causing that. But I, it is true that once we are now heading into the next phase of this, organizations will have to begin to really think through whether they, what kind of way they want to continue with. I mean, do they now want to get everyone back into the office, which is sort of the easy way, right? Just say everyone comes back, then we don't have to change anything compared to what we did pre-pandemic. Or are we actually responding to what the work for the majority of the workforce actually wants? And that is a bit more of a, a, a hybrid working model where they can uh, you know, have a better work-life balance and things like that. Employers need to have a plan for that. You, you, you're not going to get it automatically. You need to make organizational changes. You have to think about the frequency of meetings of your staff and of teams in, in, in your group. You have to facilitate people with skills, digital skills, to work from home. Um, you, you have to think about uh, you know, what the impacts are on commuting patterns and everything and, and things like that. And also, very importantly, you have to think about things like health and well-being. I mean, some people benefit from working from home but for other people it's actually hard that they're not meeting people in the office anymore so who do you bring in and who do you leave from home my main point is that i don't think we're yet at this point that organizations uh, you know that on the whole we actually know how to do this organizations are trying to figure out uh, what uh, how to handle this but my, my my main issue really is that i need a plan to make this happen i'm glad you raised that because i was just thinking a downside for working from home if an employer thinks the majority of people enjoy working from home and it works for them productivity is good but for those who you mentioned who actually like to go into an office or into a work environment because they don't want to work from home they maybe they live alone maybe that, that they don't like to be uh, it, it, there's issues about loneliness and 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 social interaction they could be mm -hmm. compelled uh, to work from home if the employer decides it's financially advantageous for them and they get the same amount of productivity from staff yeah you've got to be really careful with that because the, the health and well-being effects i think the mental health effects of this can be huge as you say for some people this might work but for many people, it doesn't, uh, particularly for younger generations, it quite often doesn't work. It doesn't work for people who thrive on creativity and want to be you know, amongst people to do these kind of things. So you know, it would be a big mistake for organizations to think, okay, let now, let's just get rid of our offices and let everyone work from home. You really have to think through about when do we people want in the office? What is beneficial to them? How, how are we going to organize this? And how do we actually guide people doing this? It also puts a huge pressure on management in organizations. Managers now need to you know, have a, a great sort of awareness of how the people working from home, which they don't see every day around them, how they're doing, and, and to make sure that they're performing well in the organization. So again, it's way too early to say this is all gonna be fantastic. 
we can make it work. Uh, it could be a huge revolution in, uh, you know, engagement of employees with the workplace if we do this right, but it could also end up in tears if we just think that this will sort of automatically evolve and, and organizations don't have to strategize around it. And just finally, can I ask you, Professor, do you like working from home or do you prefer to be in the university? I'm very much in the group of the hybrid working model. Uh, I'm happy to be home two or three days a week, but there are moments that I want to be in the office. I mean, working in a university, you want to be surrounded by your colleagues and want to have discussions with them. And yeah. a lot of the debates happen over coffee and not in, uh, in, in the meetings. So the hybrid model is what the far majority of employees want, and I'm very much in the middle of that. Very interesting. That's Bart Van Ark, who's a Professor of Productivity Studies and Managing Director of Manchester University's Productivity Institute. So Graham Tomlinson is the fitness chef and the author of Lose Weight Without Losing Your Mind. And he's partnered with The Mail with an article that aims to dispel 11 popular diet myths, including rules about what, when and how much you eat and how to judge the progress you're making. I'm delighted to say Graham joins me now. Graham, okay, what is the biggest myth? Um, I would say the biggest myth out there is is that there are good and bad foods. Um, unfortunately, we seem to be in this mentality that makes us feel guilty or elated depending on what we've eaten, when actually in the context of our overall diets, um, no single food can have that effect on us physically or, or mentally. Now, um, people will often think if you go on a vegan diet, that's going to be much better for you. It's going to keep you, get you slimmer. Are they, would they be right or wrong? So there's context to this as well. Um, if you previously had quite an unhealthy diet, eating more fruits and vegetables would be uh, good for your overall health. But you don't need to cut out animal products that can be beneficial for overall health too. So it's about identifying, again, your, your overall diet. But yeah, it, it, it's a good idea to increase the amount of fruit and vegetables that you eat because as a nation in the UK, we don't eat enough. Right. The one of, is, is, is losing carbs the one, the one essential here? To, or to cut um, down on carbs, rather? Well, that's the thing that we hear a lot. Yes. Um, but despite, despite this, as I mentioned in the book, yeah. there is the body of evidence basically suggests that carbs don't inherently stop you from losing weight mm. or make you overweight. At the end of the day, it comes down to the total calories that you eat, whether it's carbs, protein or fats, it's the total calories in versus the total amount that you burn per day that matters. So yes, the body of evidence, as I show in the book, um, says you can enjoy potatoes and pasta and cereal and sugary treats um, if you like. Um, again, you just have to, to weigh it up and, and uh, see, see what it looks like with your overall diet. Now, I really liked myth five because this, this is me. Um, I often get in from, from the mail at home late, might be 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30, and I have something to eat and I think, oh, God, every single ounce and calorie of this is going to sit on my stomach all night because I'll be going to bed in a couple of hours and I haven't broken down the fat and all the rest. But you're saying this is a myth that still, that still gets credibility. Yeah, so the, the reason this myth came about is because people obviously, late at night, we tend to move less, so we burn fewer calories, but your metabolism doesn't just stop late at night, you're, you're constantly burning calories. So um, again, lots of evidence is, is, to, is out there to support this, and what they found that is that basically it, it, what counts is you know, over 24 hours, so it doesn't matter what time you eat, whether it's 10 p.m. or 6 a.m. or 4 p.m., it's the total calories 
at the end of the day. But that said, if you find yourself overeating late at night when you're watching movies and things mm. like that, it tends to be a, a kind of trigger for a lot of people. It's worth identifying that time of night that maybe you do overeat then. So maybe try and make some adjustments. But no, you can carry on eating at, uh, at 7.30. That's all right then. This myth I'd never heard of, I've got to say, butter in coffee is good for fat loss and health. Well, it, even if it was good for weight loss and health, it would be horrible. <laughs> True. I'm glad you haven't heard of it, but many people have, unfortunately. Right. Um, yeah, I, I talk in the book uh, quite a bit about saturated fat, fake news, and yeah. butter is, is, is loaded in saturated fat. And yes, there's this thing that's come about in the last few years. Um, it's a kind of biohacking craze whereby they claim if you put butter in your coffee, it speeds up fat loss and you know makes you full until lunchtime, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, there's no evidence to support any of that. And the counter to that is it could actually be detrimental to your health because you're loading in lots of saturated fat. And again, the evidence suggests, as I show in the book, too much saturated fat can increase your risk of, of cardiovascular disease. And just so tell it's, me, not, it's not a great yeah. thing. And Graham, just tell me about you. How trim are you? Uh, so, yeah, I, I, in terms of trim, I'm probably in, in decent shape. You know, I'm quite active. I... I work out three, four times a week. Yeah. I like to play kind of social football, things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's just conducive to, to my lifestyle, really. That's kind of, uh, yeah, how I am. And what is? And do you have an indulgence? Oh, God, yeah. L- listen, I eat everything, that I, you know, whether it's crisps or sweets and things like that. Um, I do consciously think to myself, if I've eaten a family-sized packet of salt and vinegar crisps um, I probably won't have another one for <laughs> a week or two um, but yeah I don't cut anything out of my diet because you know you need to enjoy everything that you eat and you whilst we need to be mindful about the the effects on our physical health so eating a lot of kind of healthful foods and moderating processed foods um, it's important to keep including them in our diet as well because the more we restrict them, the more we tend to want them. And I discuss that in the book. It's almost like a, a volcano effect that yeah. the more you suppress something, eventually there's going to be a big explosion. And, you know, it could lead to things like binge eating disorder, which is, is just terrible for your mental health. Really fascinating. And the book is called Lose Weight Without Losing Your Mind. Uh, uh, Graham's done a great piece in the mail today. Uh, and um, I think I'm going to have to get my nose in it pretty quickly. I'm pretty slim, Graham, but I just... You know, that old man, male midriff that begins to develop in middle age. Yeah, listen, to be honest, as long as you're happy and, and enjoying, yeah. enjoying your life, your appearance doesn't matter. You know, if you want to change your appearance, it should, it should be just because you, you want to, but you shouldn't be um, sacrificing anything else that you enjoy from your life. That's good advice, and I'm going to take it. That's Graham Tomlinson, the fitness chef, and he, and he is the author of Lose Weight Without Losing Your Mind... That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.